Welcome to Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with Raymond Nakamura and Alexis Jensen. And today we're going to be talking about redress, and not in the sense of having to change your shirt. For example, today I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt, which might be too loud for a podcast, but I'm not going to redress. You are, I almost missed that. Yeah. Well, anyway,、uh, it's because I have to wear this coat because we're freezing <laughs> in the vault of the、uh, museum right now. But the redress that we're going to be talking about is the Canadian government's official acknowledgement and apology for the wrongs it committed against the Japanese Canadians during World War II. So, in brief, what happened began in 1942 when the government forcibly removed people from their homes and interned them 100 miles away from the Pacific coast so they could not pursue their livelihoods. And by people, I mean people of Japanese descent, whether or not they were born in Canada. During this time, the government seized individuals' property and possessions and sold them without permission.、Uh, the redress doesn't cover. All the discrimination that took place 50 years before World War II, for example, not allowing them to vote and limiting their immigration and restricting their fishing licenses. But I guess you can't have everything. So, what brought about redress? In the late 1970s, the government's World War II records were made public, resulting in a scholar by the name of Anne Sunahara publishing her papers and book titled Politics of Racism that proved that the Japanese Canadians' uprooting was political and not a security measure, as the government attested to in World War II. And you can find、uh, the text for that online for free. We can put a link to it in our, on our show notes. So, Sunahara's work, coupled with other events and works such as the Dream of Riches exhibit and the first Powell Street Festival, led to a resurgence in pride and awareness in the Japanese Canadian community. And that was all tied in with the 100 year anniversary in 1977,、um, related to Manzo Nagano when he first came in 1877. And he was the first Japanese man to land in Canada and set up shop here. Right. So, This pride and feeling of wrongdoing led the Japanese Canadian community to begin redress. Redress became a long battle that started in the late 70s and ended in 1988. During this time, it was treated as a political hot potato with infighting within the Japanese Canadian community, as well as the government delaying negotiations. But finally, in August 1988, probably with the president of the Japanese Americans who had just received redress for their injustices faced during World War II. By the American government. The Canadian government sat down with the Japanese Canadian community who were being represented by the NAJC, which is the National Association of Japanese Canadian. And 17 hours later, the two parties had drafted the redress agreement. The redress agreement terms contain three points and six compensation sections. Raymond and I will be reading these points and sections out and then unpacking them for you. All right, so the Prime Minister at the time who was involved in the negotiation was Brian Mulroney, the head of the Conservatives. And he, when he was leader of opposition, had suggested that they would be interested or open to the idea of having the negotiations.、Uh, and so the three points、uh, I'm going to attempt to do in, in his sort of deep voice the Government of Canada does hereby. Acknowledge that the treatment of Japanese Canadians during and after World War II was unjust and violated principles of human rights as they are understood today. And this is an interesting point the whole idea of human rights, the, the UN Declaration, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, was developed around 1949, and the 
experiences during World War II had something to do with that awareness, growing awareness. As well, there was a bird commission that only dealt with the discrepancies between a fair market value and the price that the Japanese Canadian property was sold off at. Um, and, and so the amount that they received in total, the claimants got, was $1.2 million in 1950. And so that left a lot of um, possibilities for further um, resolution. So the second point, pledge to ensure to the full extent that its powers allow that such events will not happen again. One of the factors that made a lot of these decisions during the war possible was the War Measures Act, and this allowed Cabinet to proceed without going through Parliament. Later on in the 70s, Prime Minister Trudeau used this same act against the FLQ, and so he may have been reluctant to uh, quash it. But um, during the course of the negotiations, uh, as a separate act, the War Measures Act was replaced by an Emergencies Act, and so this was supposed to make it more democratic, I guess, in future. So it didn't become part of the negotiations. So the third point, recognize with great respect the fortitude and determination of Japanese Canadians who, despite great stress and hardship, retain their commitment and loyalty to Canada and contribute so richly to the development of the Canadian nation. And uh, I guess this is sort of a pat on the head to everybody who kept working hard. And it does seem like Japanese Canadians, well, if you take an average, they seem to be doing okay. And as an example, well, not really an example, but as at the forefront of it, you have David Suzuki, who is considered one of the most trustworthy Canadians in a recent survey. So from going uh, for being in a situation where Japanese Canadians were considered enemy aliens to being trustworthy is a big big transition I guess I would say so so then the six government compensations are as follows and they will be listed in sections so section a $21,000 will be paid in a tax-free lump sum to each individual uprooted from their home in 1942 individual compensation was probably the most discussed topic between the Japanese Canadian community and the government and so I'm going to be spending a little bit more time on this section as opposed to the others so there were two sticking points in regarding this section and the first was should individual compensation even be on the table and the second was if it is how much should each individual be awarded so let's look at should it even be on the table the opinion within the Japanese-Canadian community was conducted by the NHAC in 1986 when they sent out a questionnaire to community members and the survey had the following result. 41% were for only individual compensation, 22% were for only community compensation, meaning it would all the money would just go into a community pot, and 27% were both for individual and community compensation. And the average amount that people would like to have been compensated for was $29,500. The government opinion was, until the very end, against individual compensation. Before 1988, the government had made three offers. All of these previous offers refused to recognize individual compensation 
arguing that the Japanese Canadians were interned as a group and thus compensation should be awarded to the community and not the individual. The Japanese community and media took this argument and turned it on its head, stating, It was the government who had grouped these individuals together, and for this very reason, they should undo that wrong by awarding the individual and not the group. So, moving on to the second sticking point, how much should each individual be awarded? The Japanese Canadian community thought 29500 based on the NAJC questionnaire but the government offered them 21000 and they accepted. So how did each side get to this number? There are a few reasons. The first was, in 1985, when Price Waterhouse, an accounting firm, offered to conduct an economic study of the losses suffered by Japanese Canadians as a result of the uprooting in 1942. By 1986, they had completed their report. Their study looked at the years 1941, to 1949 and was largely based on files residing at the National Archives that were created by the Custodian of Enemy Property. The, the Custodian of Enemy Property was the government body in charge of liquidating Japanese-Canadian properties, businesses, and belongings. The reason why the Custodian liquidated the Japanese-Canadian holdings was so that it could dole out that money to intern Japanese-Canadians essentially making it so that the Japanese Canadians paid for their own internment. I always think of custodian as a janitor. Somebody, I do too. Uh, somebody <laughs> with a, a mop or something. Just yeah. Cleaning up shirt. a mess cleaning, that clean, the government yeah, created right. or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. The Price Waterhouse study concluded that the Japanese Canadian community had lost $443 million 1986 dollars. The areas of loss are as follows. Income loss. $330 million, farmland, $49.3 million, other real estate property, $41 million, fishing assets, $10.3 million, businesses, $7.6 million, and other property, meaning motor vehicles and other belongings, $10.3 million, education for youth who were in camps, $1.3 million, and other losses, things like life insurance policies, $1.1 million. The total of these were taken, and $11 million was deducted based on the awardings from the Bird Commission, which Raymond discussed about the Japanese-Canadian being awarded some money in 1947. So if you take the final sum of loss in the Price Waterhouse report of $443 million and divide it by 20,000 people, roughly the number of people who were interned, you get $22,150, which is close to the 21000 that was awarded. A second way of getting to that number may have come by looking at what the Japanese Americans were awarded. On August 10, 1988, in the U.S., each Japanese-American who was interned during the war was awarded $20,000. Now, the Japanese-Americans' property and belonging were not sold like they were in Canada, so the Canadian government could use the Japanese-American number, but it had to be more based on the added loss of the Japanese-Canadians' property. So with those three numbers of more than 20000 of what the Japanese-Americans were awarded and around 22150 as the Price Waterhouse study determined, as well as the desire of 29500 that the Japanese-Canadian community wished, they all came to the agreement of $21,000. Of the 20,000 or more people entered in World War II, 18,534 Japanese-Canadians applied for individual compensation. 
Of these applications, the government accepted 17,948 and rejected 586, making the government's individual compensation payout $377 million. And Raymond, your parents received individual compensation, didn't they, for their internment? Right, yeah. So it wasn't really compensation. It's still considered a token acknowledgement even though it's based on all these calculations, because uh, it's for that period of time, but didn't do an individual analysis. So it's a per capita thing rather than an individual compensation for what happened to particular individuals. So people in the community saw it more as a token than compensation? Well, I think so, because uh, even though there were those calculations, I think a lot of it was what was viable. And the other thing is, you know, it happens so much later. Yeah. My grandparents were already passed away, so they didn't have any benefit of that. So my my parents decided to take our family to England. <laughs> I don't know if that's weird. It must be kind of weird. Is is that that we would be going there given the British involvement in relationships with Japan and and uh, Japanese Canadians in Canada. Yeah. Previously, it's But my mom did have I remember a plate of Prince Charles and Lady Di in our kitchen and stuff like that. <laughs> so it made her happy. I think so. It was a it was a nice trip. Yeah. Uh, I kept thinking that we were in the middle of a Monty Python skit when we were there. But anyway. <laughs> so okay, moving on to section B. Twelve million dollars to the Japanese Canadian community through the National Association of Japanese Canadians to undertake education, social and cultural activities or programs that contribute to the well-being of the community or that promote human rights. What that means is the government awarded $12 million to the Japanese-Canadian community. Breaking down this awarding even further, the agreement stated that no less than $8 million was to be spent on capital projects. These capital projects included senior housing and community cultural centres. Three million of that money bought the land for Nikkei Place, where the museum resides. So technically, if redress had not happened, Raymond and I would not be sitting here today. Well, I guess the way you could look at it is if people hadn't lost all their property and their jobs, there would have been uh, already uh, a whole bunch of rich Japanese-Canadian people who could have built their, their community. Yes. So maybe it wouldn't be in Burnaby. So where we are sitting right now might have Yeah, okay, that, that might be the case, yeah. <laughs> But yes. And other cultural centers that went up around the country were in Winnipeg, Toronto, which already had one but then moved into a bigger center, Calgary, Kamloops, Steveston, Vernon, Hamilton, Edmonton, Thunder Bay, Ottawa, and Montreal. And then you have $4 million of the $12 million that was to go to educational, social, and cultural programs. Of this $12 million, there were 152 successful grant applications with the bulk of the money split between Vancouver and Toronto. So moving on to Section C. Section C. $12 million on behalf of Japanese Canadians and in commemoration of those who suffered these injustices and matched by a further $12 million from the Government of Canada for the creation of a Canadian Race Relations Foundation that will foster racial harmony and cross-cultural understanding and help eliminate racism. So what this means, an endowment grant of $24 million would be given to start the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. All the money was coming from the government, but half of it would be donated on behalf of the Japanese Canadians. 
The Foundation's goal was and is to eliminate racism in Canada. It opened its doors in Toronto in 1997. According to its website, it offers to help develop policies, programs, and workshops that will lead people toward a more equitable and just society. It further puts people in touch with specialists on particular topics related to racism. Maybe it's going to encourage intermarriage as well. I guess it, maybe they don't have to do that. It's already happening. It's already happening. Yeah. So on to Section D, subject to application by eligible persons to clear the names of persons of Japanese ancestry who are convicted of violations under the War Measures Act or the National Emergency Transitional Powers Act. And this involved the Nisei Mass Evacuation Group and other people who were sent to prisoner of war camps. These were people who were protesting the treatment of people of Japanese descent. They didn't like being separated from their families or being stuck in internment camps. Imagine that, that they would have some objection to being <laughs> treated like cattle and, and for without having any just cause. Well, they were under the impression that they were having a criminal record because of this, and so this was clearing their names. And Section E... Uh, to grant citizenship, Canadian citizenship, to persons of Japanese ancestry still living who were expelled from Canada or had their citizenship revoked during the period 1941 to 1949 and to their living descendants. Uh, so if people were considered a problem, they were sent back to Japan or sent to Japan in some cases, even if they hadn't been there before. So that's what repatriation referred to after 1945 or so they had the choice of either going east of the Rockies or to Japan. And so those people ended up losing their Canadian citizenship. There's an interesting film called Minoru, which deals with uh, Minoru Fukushima and his experience of going to Japan with his family and then joining the Canadian army and then being able to come back to Canada that way. So, Section F. To provide, through contractual arrangements, up to $3 million to the National Association of Japanese Canadians for their assistance, including community liaison and administration of redress over the period of implementation. So what this means is a $3 million pot was made available to the NAJC to apply to for administrating the terms of redress. The approved NAJC proposals went on to set up regional and local liaison offices and hire staff to carry out the administrative tasks of the settlement's terms. These tasks included helping individuals fill out applications for individual compensation, conducting surveys to see where the community would like to allocate the capital and program funding, and once the surveys were completed, overseeing the funding of projects determined by the survey. So that concludes a rundown of the agreement, and now we get to the historical event, the drum roll, the signing. It occurred on September 22nd, 1988, when Prime Minister Brian Mulroney and the NAJC President Art Miki signed the redress agreement in the House of Commons in Ottawa. Doo-doo! I think it's interesting that it happened in 1988. Uh, I know my grandmother, when she turned 88, it was an auspicious year. Because if you write it in Japanese, 88 looks like the character for rice, and it represents abundance and good things. I guess that's not to read too much into it. I don't really believe in universal 
I think, well, I think, well, I live in apartment number eight, and I feel like ever since I've moved into that apartment, good things good have things happened Good things have me. happened. Well, <laughs> that's, that's strong evidence then. Uh, so as far as this working out, some people have questioned the motives of the government. There's things that are always political. It's interesting to think that at that time, they were in the midst of free trade discussions, and that, that became rancorous at times. It's also interesting to think that Lucien Bouchard was the uh, Minister of State, and he later uh, formed the Bloc Québécois, and what that means about his own motivations or, or ideology with respect to this. Uh, but Roy Meeky, in his book about redress says that it's not really relevant. Uh, it's more important to think about the implications to the Japanese-Canadian community. And, and it does seem like it provided closure for people in terms of having an official acknowledgement that what happened was not acceptable. Even though it happened in the past, it's not considered okay. And there is a commemorative poem of thanks for the public apology and payment of compensation funds by Takeo Ujo Nakano. And the English version goes like this. Our dark cloud of a half-century dissipated, the fairest day in Japanese-Canadian history dawns. Our joy is unsurpassable. It's a nice poem. So that concludes the redress edition of Sounds Japanese-Canadian to me. With me, Alexis Jensen. And Raymond Nakamura. Thanks for tuning in.